You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That's good. It's good to be back with you if you're visiting with us, or maybe last week was your first week. My name is Matt Nickerson, lead pastor, and it was such a crazy beginning to the year that my wife and I last year were looking at the calendar and said, you know what? This would be a good time to do that thing. So a few years ago, I'm telling you this because I want all the husbands in the room to listen so that their wives can be blessed. A few years ago, I sent my wife on a birthday trip to her friend Patty, with her friend Patty, and then it's just kind of become this yearly thing where it's like, let's find that time in the calendar. I get X amount of weeks of vacation a year, and I almost always take one of them to take my boys and go party and do daddy boy stuff. And then mama gets to go with her friend to, well, kind of party and uh, whatever, whatever women do when they're without their husbands, I have no idea. And, uh, and I don't know that I want to know. No, I'm just kidding. And, um, and so anyway, it was really good for them. And that's why I wasn't here last week. And I was like in service in Ohio and my phone is blowing up with pictures of what God was doing last week. So if you weren't here, you missed it too. You need to go online and look. But like the stage was filled with people who were responding to God's prompting in their spirit. And then the church was being the church and just surrounding them and praying and loving on those people. And can we all just stop and give a glory to God and thank you to Lyndon for preaching God's word last week? Yeah. And um, I just want to say real quick, so if you were one of those people who responded, or maybe you responded in your heart and you didn't come forward and ask for prayer, that's okay. Perhaps you're at home still and you're watching it, but yet you were prompted in your heart to respond. Uh, we would love to follow up with you. We don't need to track a number. This isn't about finding out how many people, but if there's something we could do to serve you, a ministry to connect you to, some way we can continue to pray for you and come alongside you, just text anytime, connect. Literally, in a text, send the word connect to 317 317- 565-4911, and uh, we just love to get in touch with you. So anyway, we hope to hear from you and let you know how we can bless you. So what we're going to do today is jump right into the message. It's the third week of the series. It's your move. And the whole goal here is if we could just get every single person in our church to do these four things, it would radically change your life, your world, and the people around us. And so without going into all of what third, the third week is about, if you are new to Kingsway, you may not know this about me, but I love history. I love history. I'm not really good at it, but I love to study it and I love to tell you about it. How, are there any other history nerds in the room? A few of you? Good. All of you are going to love today's message. Everybody else, I'm sorry you picked today to be here with us, but this going to be a little bit of a history lesson today. And then the other thing I need to tell you about me, in case you're new here, is um, I have this thing called ADHD. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of it or not. And so the way this sermon is going to look is a lot like a lot of my sermons where we go over the river through the woods and you think to yourself, where is he going? And then we're going to come out of the woods. You're going to see grandma's house and you're going to go, oh, that's why didn't you just say we were going to grandma's house? And it's more fun to go my way. That's why we're going this way. So without any further ado, let's jump in. I want to show you a computer made image of a city and the city is known as Jericho, Jericho. This is what Jericho they think would have looked like. Do the math here because it's important for where we're going 3,500 years ago. Are you with me? Roughly 3,500 years ago, that's what it would have looked like. Now, when I went over to Israel a few weeks ago, I told you, you just have to be here 10 years to hear all the stories. But I learned about something called a tell, a tell, a T-E-L-L. Jericho today is called tell S. Let me say, say in this right, S-Sutan, tell S-Sutan. A tell is not like in poker where you can read somebody's cards based off their facial expression. A tell is, what happens is, there's an ancient city or development thousands of years ago and there's a war or something happens and that city gets torn down or destroyed in some way and the next city gets built on top of it, the next civilization, maybe 100 years later, and then another one gets built on that 
And another one gets built on that, and another one gets built on that. And I'm not an archaeologist. I just like to read this stuff. So I don't know why they called it a tell. But you can tell the age of a city based off those multiple layers of rock. What, what kind of rock they used, what kind of brick they used, what kind of how they built it could tell them, hey, we're looking at this period of time and history and that kind of thing. And so that's really important as we get into this ancient city. If you were with us, say, in the month of February, we went through the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, where Exodus ends, Moses can't go into the promised land. The Israelites have just wandered around the desert for 40 years because of their lack of faith. But now it's time. And Joshua, this is the book of Joshua, Joshua's going to lead them out of the desert and into the promised land. And they're going to cross the Jordan River, which I have pictures of. I'm going to show you today. They had to cross the Jordan River and go into the first city there in the promised land. And guess which city it is? Tell as Sutan. It's Jericho, or what we would call Jericho. Now, obviously, nobody's there to take that picture. That's an artist's rendering. Because what happens is God gives them very specific orders. Go into the city. You're going to march around it for seven days. On the seventh day, you're going to march seven times. You're going to blow trumpets. The walls are going to come down. Now, before all of this happens, Joshua sends in two spies. You can read all this in Joshua chapter one and two, really, everything I'm summarizing. Joshua sends in these two spies and he says, I want you to check things out. Come and give a report. What does the city look like? What are you seeing and experiencing? And when he gets there, uh, these two spies meet a, um, a, a woman of ill repute, a woman of the night. She is a, a prostitute. Some texts call her a harlot, depending on your translation of the Bible. I won't go any further into that. You get the idea. The reason this is important is because her immoral background doesn't prevent her from faith in God. Let's hang on to that for a second. So when these two spies get into Jericho, they have this conversation with this woman. And basically she says, we, everybody in Jericho, we've heard all about you. In fact, in the land, everybody's heard about you guys. She'd be well connected to the rumor mill. She would have a lot of brief conversations with many people. Let's put it that way. And she says, everybody's heard about you guys. And we've seen what's happened in other places, what your God has done for you. And we're afraid. Well, what happens is there's some soldiers and whatnot. They hear that these two Israelite spies are there and they want to deal with them and they come looking for them and everybody finds out what's happening. And so she hides them in her house and lies and creates a story and covers for them and says, oh, no, 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 the spies already left. They went back to the Israelites. They went that direction. You should go look for them. Hurry, you could probably still catch them. But meanwhile, she's got them hiding in her house. And she tells them, I will lie for you, basically. I will cover for you if when your people come and take our city, you spare me and my family. And they work out a deal. And the spies tell her, we will make sure that you are safe if you do what you said and make sure that you don't rat us out, you don't sell us out. Here's what you do. Take a scarlet thread, tie it in your window, and when we come and do what God has told us to do, when we see that scarlet thread, everybody inside your house will be safe. Sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The Israelites show up, march around the city, seventh time, blow the trumpets, and the walls come a-crumbling down. You've heard the story, perhaps? And the people go in, and they burn the city to the ground. And they take all the treasures out, and those go to God, the, the first fruits, so to speak, of the promised land goes to God. And they go into the city, and he tells, Joshua tells those two spies, find the scarlet thread, find Rahab, everybody in that home, get them out, because we're going to spare their lives. And now the city of Jericho was destroyed. In fact, here's what it looks like today. This is it. It's not really impressive. You're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Exactly, right? This 
is one of the ancient pieces of the ancient wall. You're like, that's it? We went all that way for that. No, that's not it. But we're getting up to the river. We got to cross it, right? So I got to lay a foundation so we can keep going through the woods to get to grandma's house. Stick with me. So this is it. And the reason I tell you that is, first of all, I don't know where you are. I don't know your background. I don't know where you, what you think about God and faith and Bible. But one of the biggest things when I went to Israel, it was a little disappointing because there were so many things we don't know exactly where they occurred. That was one of the shocking things to me. Like we know what was in this area. We don't know exactly where. But this one, we know exactly where. This was 3,500 years ago. We are told about this entire story in the book of Joshua, as well as other places throughout the Bible, and yet here is one of the pieces of one of the walls. We are not just talking about history that's made up. We're talking about a real time and a real place and a real people. And what was really crazy about this is that lady, Rahab, who led them into this place, she has a profound place in God's story. In fact, she's talked about in the great heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews, alongside guys like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah. Rahab? Oh, yeah. In fact, she's so important, she's listed in Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not know your Bible history, but Matthew is a tax collector. In Jesus' day, they're hated, hated. Nobody likes tax collectors. And don't get me wrong, I get it, right? Like, I don't know if anybody loves tax collectors. If you work for the IRS, I never said that. Um, but in Jesus' day, it's worse because the Israelites are under Roman rule and oppression, and they would pay the Jews, people, accountants to collect taxes for the people and they were extra despised and they were allowed to not only collect the money the Romans told them, but they were allowed to add whatever fees above and beyond that that they could to make money for themselves. Matthew includes Rahab in his genealogy of Jesus Christ on purpose because he's trying to say, and even she can have a changed life through him. See, there always seems to be a group of people that we think aren't good enough to make it. They aren't worthy of God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. But Rahab shows us that there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. And I don't know where you are today, but what moves us from the things that we've done to where we really want to be is faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. This is what we call the scarlet thread. And this scarlet thread runs from all the way in Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it's going to run all the way to eternity when we all get there. Because the reality is we all need a savior every single one of us. And this scarlet thread that hung out the window, it symbolized the faith of a woman, not in what she had done that led to that moment, but in what God was about to do going forward. And she became the, I think I'm saying this right, great, great grandmother of King David. Isn't that crazy? God completely changed her story. And here's the thing, he's still in the business of changing stories today, which is why in James chapter two, James writes this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. 
because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's unpack this for a bit, okay? This is really important. What is James trying to get to? Well, part of what James is trying to get to is he's dealing with the people who are very judgmental. And I know we have a tendency to be very judgmental of people. It would not be hard for us to run into Rahab's today or whoever fits the bill in your mind and think they're not worthy. But the scriptures tell us none of us are worthy. What James is trying to get to is there's this phrase throughout the Old Testament and it's built on in the New Testament. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. Part of the reason the great and terrible day of the Lord is great and terrible is because it's referring to the day of judgment when Jesus finally comes back and all of us will stand before him. It will be great for some of us because for some of us, it's going to be eternal life. It's going to mean freedom. It's gonna mean the fact that we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we will now live eternally with him. But it's gonna be terrible because some will not trust Jesus. Some will not put their faith in him and they will be left to carry the weight of the wrath of God on their own. See, in case you're visiting with us and you don't know what I'm talking about, when Jesus went to the cross and resurrected from the dead, this is what we're gonna celebrate in two weeks, right? It's gonna be so good. What we're celebrating in that moment is Jesus took the weight of our sin on himself, the wrath of God. He drank the cup. We just talked about this a couple weeks ago. He drank the full cup of the wrath of God in that moment. So now when I trust in him, as Rahab was even doing 3,500 years ago, when I put my faith in him, I'm trusting that what he did on the cross, when he suffered that penalty, he was taking my penalty away from me. So now that day is great for me. But if I don't put my faith in him, then I only have my best good deeds, my best days to go before God and say, I know I've done all these things that you've asked me not to do, but look at some of the good things that I did, God. And it's not enough. And what James is trying to get to here is he's saying, those of you who do believe in Jesus Christ, you should act as people who understand what God has done for you. When you come to Jesus, you understand you're no better than Rahab. You're no better than Matthew. You're no better than anybody else just because your sin is different than them. You have sinned against an infinitely holy God, but his love is bigger than your sin. And he wants to set you free. And he's trying to say to them, so start judging and evaluating others by the law that gives freedom. Not the Old Testament law, the list of rules of do's and don'ts and all the things we had to do to be right. No, 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 no. The law of Jesus Christ, the law of love that gives freedom. It sets you free. And then he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. In other words, in your dealings and interactions with other Rahabs, with other Matthews, Make sure that you are treating them with the same mercy that God has treated you with. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. It's easy to wag a finger. It's easy to stare down at someone else. But be careful. Because if you judge others, there will be no mercy left. Years ago, I heard a, a, a pastor named Mark Scott. He gave this great illustration at my last church, and he had two hats, and he put them on stage far apart. And he said, one hat is the hat of mercy, and, and one hat is the hat of justice. And he said, God always wants us to pick up the hat of mercy and leave justice to him. 
In fact, I think it's in the book of Romans. I think it's in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul tells us that God says it's mine to avenge. So let me take care of, quote, unquote, paying somebody back. And he said, here's what happens. When we don't pick up the hat of mercy, but we pick up the hat of justice, we force God's hand. And he picks up the hat of mercy. And then we get mad at God because we're like, how dare you be kind to them? How dare you be merciful to them? He's like, well, I wanted to give justice. It's just that you took the role away from me. So now I'm left to show compassion. So when we take this position of mercy, what happens is we trust judgment into God's hand. It doesn't change whether evil is evil and wrong is wrong or sin is sin. It doesn't change any of those things. What it changes is the way that we deal with people. And this is important because we say we're a church that wants to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we become more like Jesus by studying how Jesus treated people. Quick question, who is in your life that as I'm speaking right now, you think to yourself, God is asking me to show mercy rather than judgment? Is there a name? Somebody jump out to you. Perhaps the rest of this message is for you then. When I went to um, Jericho to visit, what you find is there's the old city, which I just showed you the little portion that we have, the wall. Then there was a newer city And the newer city was built 500 years later. So if Jericho that I showed you originally was 3,500 years ago, how long ago would be the Jericho that I'm talking about now? Really simple math. 3,500 minus 500 is? Right, somewhere in that range. Yes, 3,000. I'm just kidding. No math in Bible college, no. Around 3,000 years ago. That's important because in Joshua chapter six, when the walls came down and they burnt everything, Joshua pronounces a curse. Joshua says, if anybody dares rebuild the city of Jericho, their son and their, their family will die. We read in 1 Kings 16, if you're curious, you wanna look. In 1 Kings 16, at the end of it, a man rebuilds the city of Jericho and guess what happened to his family? They died. It's powerful because the Bible continues to tell these stories and build upon it so that you can trust the story it's telling you. It is true. And you will actually see this if you were to go to Jericho today. You see the old portion, which I just showed you in a wall, and then there's a newer portion, which was built like, again, at this point, it was built uh, 3,000 years ago, but it was built 500 years after the fact. The Bible told you about all of that. And even in the book of Luke, you see it referenced in Luke chapter 18 and 19. You compare it to the other Bibles, uh, the other books, sorry, Matthew and Mark, what you see is Jesus is coming out of Jericho at one point, then he's entering into a new Jericho. Well, how can he be coming out and entering in in the same story? It's because he's leaving the old part where we're looked at in Joshua and he's entering the new part that was rebuilt later. And so we see this consistency, this trust that we can have. While we may not know where everything is exactly located, we can trust it. Now, what happened is there in Jericho, there's a little shop and we went to the shop and I was all excited because I was looking for gifts. I had very, very limited space in my bag and I didn't have a ton of money. And I was excited because the dollar is like three to one on a shekel. And I found some candies that I could fit in my bag and some food that I could bring back for my family so they could experience Israel. And I found these really cool things called sycamore nuts. And they look like this. This is a picture off the internet, a little bit of what a sycamore looks like. And so they let you try some there in their store. I took a bite like, hey, those are really good. I like them. My kids, my family, they didn't love them, but I brought them home. I ate them all. May or may not be able to tell. And um, they were really cool. They're called sycamore nuts. And then I found out later, this whole thing is a hoax. It's just a peanut cooked in sugar. (laughs) 
And I thought I was getting them for like $5 because it was like 15 and I thought it was a three to one on the shekel. And I went to check out and it turns out they were charging me American dollars. So I paid way too much for a small container of peanuts. <laughs> but the reason it was even important to me is because there's this tree in Jericho today. Looks like this. The Russian consulate came in and built right there in Jericho, built a consulate. And they built this little wall here that kind of holds a consulate inside. But this tree here is a sycamore tree. I thought maybe I was buying nuts off this tree. <laughs> Turns out I was buying peanuts. But that tree is 3,000 years old. Which means that it was either planted or was a baby tree when they rebuilt the city of Jericho in 1 Kings 16, which is super, super cool. Because what that means is this tree was existing 2,000 years ago when this happened in Luke chapter 19. Look at Luke 19, verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, like your pastor, he could not see. It's in the Greek. It's, you don't see it in the English translation. But he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. That tree I showed you, we don't know, it could be the literal tree that Zacchaeus climbed. Now, if you don't know the story, bear with me, those of you who do. Jesus, I learned when I went over there, he spent about 80% of his ministry in an area called Galilee. And then we traveled out here to Jericho and the Dead Sea and Jordan River. And then we ended up traveling on into Jerusalem. And I finally have like a picture in my head of what we're talking about here. And I won't, don't have time for all of that. But basically there was rumors spreading around. There's this healer, there's this rabbi, there's this teacher. And he's over in Galilee and he's doing all these things. He pastored Jericho. We heard about him in Jerusalem. And people are traveling to do business, right? That's what people do. And they're traveling and they're talking about, I heard this and man, he made this blind person see and I didn't see it, but I met the person and, and I knew him, he really was blind. And now he can see. And as rumors start to talk, all of a sudden rumors come out that Jesus and some of his disciples, they're on their way to Jericho. And so people are lining the streets just to get a glimpse at him. I wonder what party trick he's going to do now. And so Zacchaeus, because he's short, climbs a tree. But because he's a tax collector, nobody's making room for him. They hate him. You will find often in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they say things like tax collectors and other sinners were came to meet Jesus. Sometimes they'll say tax collectors and other immoral people came to meet Jesus. It's like there's sinners, then there's um, the, the, the prostitutes, and then there's the tax collectors. And it's not an accident that we're told these stories. And I tell you this all the time. 
Never read your Bible by itself. Don't pick out a verse and build your theology around it. Read the Bible and then wrestle with all that it says. And if you were to go back one chapter earlier into Luke 18, what you will find is Jesus is already laying a foundation in Luke 18. He tells a story. It's just an illustration. It's a parable. It's a made-up story that may have actually happened many, many, many times. And he says, there's a worship service and people have gathered and there's a Pharisee, a religious person, a Sadducee. They're the best of the best of the best. They're the most immoral, get everything right kind of person. And they come into the worship service and they say, oh God, thank you that I am not like that tax collector over there. Meanwhile, and it's like Jesus took a hidden camera and put it in the room and it zoomed in on the tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector is there with his head bowed. He doesn't even look up to God because he's so ashamed because he knows what he's done. And the tax collector says, oh God, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, the tax collector went away justified before God. How? That's not fair. This religious guy is the best of the best of the best. He's kept more rules than anyone. But this guy is humble. And he understands his sin. And he's crying out for mercy. And then we hop into Luke 19 and Zacchaeus climbs this tree so he could just get a glimpse. And verse five says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, I don't know all the things that make uh, the, the next part of the story happen, But I do know with absolute certainty that Zacchaeus came down the tree, he takes Jesus, they go to his house. I don't know who all he invites. He doesn't have hardly any friends. He's a chief tax collector, meaning he's in charge. He runs a group of tax collectors. Perhaps he invited his buddies over and said, Jesus has just invited me. You gotta come, you gotta come. Perhaps something is said at lunch. Perhaps something happens. Maybe it all happened before that. We don't know exactly when it all happened. But what is really important is the way the crowd treats Zacchaeus versus the way that Jesus treats Zacchaeus. And in the next verse, verse seven, it says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. What? Why? Who? You don't waste your time with those people, Jesus. You're supposed to spend your time with people like me. Oh God, protect us from hearts like this. May we stop seeing ourselves as better sinners than anyone else. May this church be a church where it's safe wherever you've been, whatever you've done, that God's grace and love for you is greater than your past. I can tell you if you're visiting with us, that's what we long to be. And we're working on it. And it's hard sometimes, right? But Zacchaeus, when he meets the way Jesus treats him and not the way that everybody else treats him, it says in verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor And I have cheated anybody out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. It's been said by many scholars that Zacchaeus would have effectively been bankrupt after this. Now that's radical. 
So to just immediately cut your wealth in half right now. I don't know what's in your 401k or your, your, your savings account. Just cut it in half right now. In your head, just cut it in half. Then take any time you've ever cheated or stolen or not been completely honest with somebody. In fact, you'll find this spelled out in Leviticus chapter six. In Leviticus chapter six, it tells us all about it. If you find your neighbor's possession, maybe lying in your yard or along the road, and you take it and keep it for your own, that's theft. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. And so what Leviticus 6 tells us is if that's ever the case, you lie about a business deal, you cheat somebody or dishonest with somebody, you take it, give it back to them, plus 20%. That was the law's requirement. Zacchaeus goes above the 20%. He goes to 400%. Roman law required that you do two times to four times whatever it is you took from someone. So what Zacchaeus is doing is somebody who's very well aware of the Roman law, he's going to the most extreme interpretation of fairness and justice. And he's saying, if anybody comes to me and says I cheated them, I'll give them four times what they say. But here's the big takeaway for us. Mercy from God leads to mercy from us. When we realize the debt that has been paid by Jesus We literally open-handed our lives to God and say, God, there's nothing I could do to buy what he's given me. I can't afford it. So whatever you want to do with my heart, whatever you want to do with my life, here you go. It's all yours to direct as you please. And then Jesus proclaims in Luke 19, verse 9, he says that Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus, it's the title he uses for himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Of which I have been lost. I know what it feels like to wrestle with the anxiety of sin and to be set free by Jesus and to feel the weight of his mercy and grace taking off the weight of my sin. It's the weight of glory. I'm telling you, if you don't know that, you're missing out. But all of this is us meandering through the woods and jumping over a river and splashing around in it for a little bit and coming out on the other side so that we can peek through the trees and finally see grandma's house. That's just the intro. We got another hour to go, guys. I'm kidding. But the reason I tell you all of those stories is for this. Let's go back to James chapter two. James says in James two, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Just so you understand the argument. James is now going to make the argument for us that it does us no good to intellectually say we believe in the man upstairs. We're going to tip our hat. We're gonna show up, you know, worship at church once in a while, just say, yeah, I believe there's something, a power out there or whatever. No, 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 no. What James is pushing us towards is something more powerful than that, but a faith that actually lives out in everyday life, a faith that actually takes steps of faithfulness because we trust that God is for us and he's in us. And he says, suppose you meet somebody and they're in need. And he says, let's say then you meet that person. Oh, go ahead. And one of you says to them, go, be in peace. Keep warm and well-fed. Do you hear the sarcasm? One of my Bible college professors used to end every single class with be warm and well-fed. 
He wasn't as funny as he thought he was, apparently, because not one of you chuckled. But his whole point was, I'm telling you that, but I'm doing nothing about it. That's what James is saying. You see somebody cold, you see somebody naked, you see somebody hungry, you see that there's a need, and what you say to, your, to them is, man, may God bless you. Have a great day. And James goes on and he says, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? It's just talk. It's just words. In the same way, faith by itself, and if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, I can claim to have faith, but if I don't do something, then you'll never know it. Faith and good deeds go together. It's like love and marriage, or it's supposed to be. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and chocolate. Am I getting close yet? Anybody? Steak and A1. And half of you just went, why would you ruin a steak? Dogs and humans throw the cats out of the house. Come on, I don't know what to do here, right? Faith and deeds go together. Now, here's what you are not saved by. You're not saved by what you do. Zacchaeus wasn't saved because he gave his money away. Zacchaeus giving his possessions away revealed that he met Jesus and accepted him by faith. When you believe in Jesus, your life will begin to show it. And James makes this point. He goes on in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will not be saved by my deeds. I will reveal to you that I have faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. <laughs> Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's not enough to just kind of tip the hat to God. God is looking for people who are going to be transformed by his love, by his grace. So then he goes on. And I want you to see grandma's house here, ready? And he says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In other words, the whole reason James uses Rahab is because he's reading the book of Joshua and he's going, this is a great illustration of faith. Here's a woman who was immoral. She was condemned under the law. She deserved destruction, but because she placed her faith in God, she allowed it to transform her. She, in other words, she acted out on her faith. She trusted God. What happened next is she was saved, her family was saved, and she became the great-great-grandmother of King David, which makes her in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And now for us, an example of faith that wherever you've been to this moment, leave it in the past and step forward in faith, trusting God with your life. And some of you all want to clap. Some of you aren't sure. Like nobody else claps, so I'm just going to hold back. That's all right. But I want you to see this. I wrote this one at four in the morning, all right? So lots of grace because it's, it's a mouthful. But I couldn't sleep one night when I was writing this. Our faith in God's abundant blessings frees us to become abundantly generous and all that he, God, has given us. And what I meant when I wrote that at 4 a.m. is this. What happens to us is we become stingy with the things of God because we aren't sure that there will be enough. When God asks me to forgive somebody, I really don't want to forgive that name that maybe God brought to mind. I'm afraid I don't have enough forgiveness. So I don't release them, even though God has released me of everything. I don't show mercy, I judge because it makes me feel better about myself. 
I don't give more of my time or energy or effort or love because I'm afraid I have to save a little bit for myself because there might not be enough. I don't give more of my money because what if there's not enough? Don't get me wrong. You can abuse all of these principles. I'm not trying to abuse anybody. Y'all need balance too, right? Like I have to feed my family and God's not calling me to enter into a relationship with an abuser who's not repentant. That's not the kind of stuff. That's where we're taking these principles and abusing them. What I'm talking about is when we come into the presence of God and he has shown us so much mercy, he's poured out so much good on us and that we don't give it back to others, we are actually showing we don't yet have a faith that is developed to trusting him. And that's what I long for for us. In fact, Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter six, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What took me forever to figure out what Jesus is trying to say here. Here's my best way to picture this for you. So uh, have you ever been to a 7-Eleven and ordered a Slurpee? There was one point at my last job where like six of us went and bought those, I think they were like 32 ounce insulated thermal mugs because we planned to drink a lot of Slurpees. And we would go in and you'd put in a little bit of like this cherry flavor, a little bit of this like Mountain Dew flavor, a little bit like something other flavor and you like put it, and you keep, every time you put a new flavor, you pack it down and you shake it up so that it settles. And then you put in more and you put in more and you put in more and then you put on the lid. Then you put it under and you put in more and you put in more and every time you keep shaking it, shaking it until you put in more, you put in more and then it spills out over the edge and then you know what you do? You take, ah, ah, all the way around that bad boy. You know what I'm talking about? It's a good measure, press down, shake it together and then pouring over into your lap. Maybe that didn't do it for you, but it's because you haven't had a Slurpee. You've had an icy or some knockoff version. You got, go to set 11. But let me, let me be serious for a second, Okay. What Jesus is trying to get to is not that hard. Don't condemn, don't be judged. Forgiveness, mercy, generosity, whatever it is that God has given to you, imagine that there's an abundance in heaven waiting to be poured back out onto you. Imagine it pressed down, shaken together, and more coming so that it spills over into your lap. That's the abundance that God has to give to you so that you have more than enough to give away to others. And the reason I'm saying all of this, all of this, is because I want us to be a church, a gathering of people, that when we see a need in the world, we meet it. That's it. And so when you're at work and maybe somebody else is going through a difficult time, you see yourself as appointed to meet the need. When you see a family going through a hard time, you don't have to call the church to find out what someone else can do. You just step into the moment and you meet it. When your neighbor is going through something hard, you just show up and be the one to help. Somebody recently told me, I was a genius, but said, you really want to impact your neighbors? Whenever there's somebody moving in, be the first one there to help unload the truck. You don't have to know them. That's a great way to get to know them. Your first contact would be serving them, loving them. When someone has hurt you and wronged you and you feel like you deserve justice, instead, show mercy, show forgiveness. It'll change the world. In fact, we saw an example of this this past week a little bit. How many of you watched the Oscars? Liars, none of you watched the Oscars. You all watched the news afterwards. I'm just kidding. Some of you probably watched the Oscars. 
But most of us heard about the Oscars this year because what happened between Will Smith and Chris Rock, right? This is not a comment on that. Like that's another conversation for another day. I'm gonna take a guess that both men wish they could have a do-over. I'm just gonna guess. I'm gonna assume the best about both of them for just a moment. I don't know where Will Smith is in his faith or Jesus. It's not the point of this. But after that happened, when the cameras were off and everybody was kind of figuring out what to do with it, two men who, everything I've read, said they both claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ, Tyler Perry and Denzel Washington, went over to Will Smith and tried to have a conversation with him. And yesterday, Denzel Washington did an interview with uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes. And again, this is not a comment about Bishop's doctrinal stances. I disagree with many of his things. So if you're thinking about sending me an email, please don't. Just save it, all right? The point of this illustration, the point of this illustration is these two men saw somebody in need, and I don't know about anybody else, but anybody else tired of Hollywood yet? I'm tired of Hollywood pushing an agenda into my life and into my kids' lives, constantly trying to trip everybody up and to lead them into sin. But these two men work in Hollywood, and they're trying to do something from the inside. They're trying to do something. And when they saw a brother in need, they literally got up, they went over to him, had a conversation with him, and in the interview yesterday with Denzel, he just said, there was nothing else that we could do except for pray. So we prayed with him when the cameras were off. And then Denzel said to Bishop Jakes, he said, it's not in my nature to do nothing. I just think that somebody should have stepped into the moment and done something, so I did. Now he's already getting raked over the coals by other people who were there for the things that he said. There are articles being written in other magazines for stepping out and simply seeing a need and meeting it. And that's what may happen to you. But who cares what the crowd says? Jesus didn't. If Zacchaeus had listened to the crowd, he'd never met Jesus. Rahab didn't. If Rahab had listened to everybody else and did what everybody else did, she'd be dead like everybody else. God's looking for some people whose faith is gonna call them out of the shadows, out of the crowd, and to step into faith and say, you know what? I may not be able to change the world, but for that person, for that family, for that situation, for that story, I can do something. And will you be that one? Will you be that one? It always begins with faith. So what I wanna do now is just call you first into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. We had one person respond. I don't know the story or the situation, but we don't wanna end this moment without calling you to be Zacchaeus, without calling you to be Matthew, without calling you to be Rahab. Before you can act on faith, you have to express your faith. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Faith cannot just be in your head. It has to come out of your mouth and out of your life. Listen, right now, if you are ready to express your faith in Jesus and you have never done this before, I want you to just raise your hand. I know it may seem awkward. Just raise your hand and we have a team of people that are ready to come to you and just talk to you. That's all you're doing right now is saying, I need Jesus. And God sees you. God knows what you're going through and he's ready to meet you in that place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, would you take this message and, and do something with it in all of our hearts and lives? God, teach us to be like Rahab. God, teach us to be like Zacchaeus. Teach us to be bold in our faith and take, take a step, to take a chance. And God, I pray that you would meet us in that place. As we become a salt and a light in this dark world, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, use our small sacrifices on a daily basis for your good, 
for your name and for your glory. God, give us courage because fear is what so often keeps us paralyzed. But as you told Joshua, do not be discouraged, do not be dismayed, do not fear, go for I am with you. May we truly be a people who believe that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, all God's people said,